Welcome to the Blood Cancer Experience, a podcast series presented by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. This series connects people affected by blood cancers to their community with stories of hope, healing, and help. Hi, I'm George Athens, your host for this ongoing series of podcasts. Today, our guest is Dr. John Curavilla, a hematologist and oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Toronto. The topic for discussion is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL. Thanks for joining us. All right, George. Well, very happy to be here, and uh, hopefully I can uh, do some justice to your questions. We'll see how that goes. Okay. So first of all, why did you choose to work in this uh, field of medicine? Okay. Well, it's a, it's an interesting story. So I think for many people um, who end up subspecializing in an area, there's usually two things that happen. So firstly, you may come across some people during your training that are teaching you and they make a field seem very exciting. And so for me, when I was in my second year of medical school, I met a hematologist that was working at Princess Margaret named Ian Court, uh, who trained a generation of hematologists and oncologists. And he could just tell a really good story. He made medicine very interesting. He was a great clinician, very good with patients, and you know, really a model for someone that you would kind of want to grow up to be like. And so he was my first exposure uh, during my residency, I came across a couple of patients that I'd looked after that uh, we had worked up and we made a diagnosis on on a general medical ward of a lymphoma or a leukemia, and then we would hand them off to the specialists. And, and again, those cases I remember very well and, and found them really interesting. And then, uh, you know, later in my training, I went to, to British Columbia to, to do some training with the transplant leukemia group there as well as the lymphoma group and you know got to meet again a couple of people who were instrumental in uh, leading the lymphoma initiatives in in Vancouver and that really uh, you know for me sort of stoked the fire to want to do research and specifically within lymphoma so that was the journey from hematology to malignant hematology and ultimately to lymphoma was because of some patients but as well as some of the guys that trained me along the way. Always great to have good inspiration, no matter what field you're in. Uh, what is diffuse large B cell lymphoma and, and how does it differ from, say, uh, other forms of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Yeah, so it's a great question, George. And when we think about lymphoma, you know, part of this is really based on history. And so the way that lymphoma was initially classified came from pathologists looking at biopsies under the microscope and having very simple tools. And so what they often saw were large abnormal cells. So that's where the large comes from. Diffuse in that the normal cells that might have been in a lymph node were replaced by these large abnormal cells diffusely. And we learned over time that those were, were B cells based on certain other tests that would be done. Uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is the most common type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that we see. Uh, when we think of lymphoma, we think of Hodgkin's lymphoma and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, NHLs are far more common. And lymphoma is actually the sixth most common cancer in Canada currently. So it's actually quite a common disease. And it's important to recognize because it is very common, but it's also potentially very curable 
with standard treatment. What do you think a person recently diagnosed with diffuse large B cell lymphoma should know? Well, there are going to be a million questions there. And I think uh, there's ones that you, you can think of as a, as a hematologist or a specialist looking after a patient. So, uh, you know, what you'll want to know as an example from the diagnosis is, you know, are there specific characteristics of the diffuse large B cell lymphoma that may be important? So again, it's, a, it's an umbrella term that we sometimes use to describe certain different subtypes of diffuse large B cell uh, lymphoma as well. As an example, one, one subtype is something called primary mediastinal large B cell lymphoma. And so that's a disease that we tend to see uh, often in younger people, often in younger women, and it shows up with a large mass in the chest, and it may sometimes be confused with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And if we see that, we may think about approaching treatment slightly differently than we would for diffuse large B cell lymphoma when we see it in its standard presentation. Uh, there may be some molecular tests uh, that can be done on a biopsy that help determine uh, prognosis. It may determine something called cell of origin, which we like to think about biologically, uh, though we're still you know, not at a point necessarily that that may impact how we choose treatment upfront. Uh, but these are some things that we want to think about uh, and the pathologist should be telling us on a report uh, as we start to think about looking after the patient. Uh, from a staging standpoint, again, looking where the disease is located. And so this has traditionally been done with CT scans of the neck, the chest, the abdomen and pelvis, looking for uh, sites of lymphoma based on lymph nodes that may be larger than normal or other abnormalities there. Uh, in 2023, I'd say a PET scan is a standard test. Uh, so again, that adds more information than a CT scan because uh, with uh, the way the test works, um, you use radioactive sugar uh, that is given as the contrast agent. And so even a normal lymph node might light up abnormally uh, because lymphoma cells are taking up more sugar than a normal lymph node would. And so staging might include a variety of these tests. Uh, we do some blood tests. There may be a name to do, uh, maybe a need to do a bone marrow test or uh, some other things that may come up routinely in staging. Uh, when looking at uh, other things that we want before people start treatment, some of that's assessing general medical well-being, and so we we would want to look at kidney tests, liver tests. Uh, we like to do screening for hepatitis B and hepatitis C before starting treatment. Uh, you might get a heart test. Uh, to look at heart function to make sure that that's normal before starting some standard chemotherapy. So these are a lot of the medical things that go into the discussion before starting a treatment. Um, the treatment itself is generally a pretty standard one. Our CHOP tends to be the gold standard. So those are the initials of the five drugs. But the number of cycles, may radiation be used? Uh, you know, are there other considerations with treatment? Those are the sorts of things that come up. So those are some of the very common medical things. But at a practical standpoint, you're also thinking about, you know, what are the side effects of the treatment? You know, what are the risks? Is there something unique to a specific patient based on their medical history? Uh, you know, how is this going to look in terms of work? Do I need to be careful around other people? Do I change my diet? Like there are a million questions, George, really, that that can come up. 
Well, what are the possible side effects of, uh, of the treatments and how can they be managed? Uh, and is, he, is it in a hospital setting or at home or in, in both instances? Yeah, so, you know, the good thing about this type of treatment is it's really been a standard for about 20 years now. So there's a lot of experience and a knowledge that we can draw from to guide how we look after patients. So this is an outpatient treatment. Uh, so people come to the hospital, they get blood tests done. They're usually seen in a clinic setting where they're reviewed. You may discuss the prior treatment cycle and how things went. If there were any problems, you'll fine tune and, and then proceed. Most hospitals these days won't give treatment the same day that uh, a patient is seen in the clinic. It's just a little more efficient to maybe organize that on the day after so that the chemo unit's ready to go with the drugs mixed and, and treatments ready. Um, so patients come in, they'll get these intravenous treatments. The very first time you get RCHOP, it's often a long day because the R in the RCHOP is a drug called rituximab. So rituximab is one of the original immunotherapies. So this is a monoclonal antibody that targets CD20 and CD20s a marker that we see on the majority of B cell lymphomas and generally on all diffuse large B cell lymphomas. And it's one of the key components of the treatment because the study that established it as the standard of care showed that it improved the cure rate and overall survival by about 15%. So it's a great treatment. It's been around for a long time, but as a drug, it's, its most common side effect is actually mild allergic reactions while people are getting the drug infused in the chemo unit. And so the way that we prevent that, we may give some pre-medications, Tylenol, those sorts of things. We start the infusion very slowly. And then as someone tolerates it, you may speed it up a little more quickly over the course of several hours. If it goes very smoothly as it does in the majority of patients, then the next time it's given, it can be given much more quickly over 90 minutes. If we run into some side effects, uh, you may slow the drug down. You may then give some more medications to manage the side effects if it's a low grade fever or if it's some chills or shakes or something like that. And then you can usually resume and speed it up again. Uh, so that's the common thing that you tend to see with rituximab. When you look at the other chemotherapy drugs in CHOP, so CHOP, um, you know, you can think of the typical side effects of chemotherapy. So again, historically, nausea and vomiting were quite common, but with modern anti-nauseants, so we tend to give them preemptively, uh, we can really prevent people from really getting bad nausea. We also may use an as-you-need-it anti-nausea tablet that people can have available uh, if they run into problems with nausea. But I'd say for the vast majority, thankfully in 2023, nausea isn't really a big concern. Um, you might see a little bit of constipation in patients. And again, often dietary modification does the job, or again, stool softeners or laxatives may be used quite typically. Um, you can think about other common side effects from the chemotherapy. So peripheral neuropathy is something that comes up from one of the drugs, the O drug actually, and that may be numbness or tingling in your fingertips or your toes. That often comes on not with the first or second treatment, but with the third or the fourth. Uh, it usually doesn't get too bad. You don't have to change the dosing of the drug, but in some people you may scale it back or hold it. 
And again, for the majority of people, the side effect tends to resolve over time. So it's not a big issue. Uh, we think about fever as actually being a very important side effect to watch out for. And so in people under the age of 60 with no other major medical problems, the risk of fever is generally pretty low in the range of 10 or 12%. And so we often don't do anything specific. However, in patients over the age of 60, where the risk of fever might be 20%, it's generally a, an international guidance that uh, people with that risk of fever can be managed with another medication. Uh, so we, it's GCSF. And so that's a drug that's given via injection. It may be daily for several days or one long acting dose of the medication. And that can significantly lower the risk of fever. But it's important for people on chemotherapy like this to have a thermometer to know that if they develop a fever, so to most people that's 38.5 in Celsius or 101 in Fahrenheit. And if if someone develops fever, they need to seek medical attention. And that might be an, an emergency room if it's after hours, or if you call the clinic to speak to uh, you know, someone who's part of the team looking after you, they may still say the emergency room is the right answer in the short term. A lot of comprehensive information there. Um, let's turn to research for a second. Um, how is research progressing with DLCBL and, and what does the future hold for those diagnosed with this type of blood cancer? Yeah, so, you know, I think the best way to think about that, George, is there's, there's basically two groups of people. And there's a group of people, and this would be the majority of people with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, that will be cured with their first treatment. And so that's a success story. And what research has been focused on in that population is really two things. So can we maintain a, an excellent cure rate and start to minimize some of the treatment that people are receiving or need to receive? And so that could be reducing the number of cycles of chemotherapy or avoiding radiation, those sorts of things. Um, and then in people where you still wanna to try to improve the rate of cure, how do you do that? And so you may do that by adding new drugs. And so um, in the past 20 years, many treatments have been tested to try to beat our chop or add to our chop. And up until the last couple of years, they had all failed. Where the field okay. is now going is we've got a lot of newer drugs that are also being tested in combination against our chop. And so there are a number of clinical trials for patients to look out for if they're in that situation and they're running at many centers across the country. Good. Um, as we wrap this up, I'd, um, I'd just like to get a, your personal feeling about working in this kind of career. It must be very satisfying and rewarding and especially to see people that have positive outcomes. Uh, so you're right. We've been very lucky to see that uh, for the majority of patients with lymphoma, you know, I've been doing this for about 20 years now, and I say we're a lot better at this than we were 20 years ago. More patients are cured with primary treatment. We're able to minimize treatments that may come with side effects and longer term problems. So that's, that's great. And it's a very rewarding thing to help a patient and their family get through what can be a very challenging situation. Uh, the flip side of that is it's, it's also very challenging and there's a need to try to improve outcomes for the patients that primary treatments don't work for. And so 
you know, looking at research in particular. So our group at Princess Margaret is very interested in designing new therapies and helping to improve the outcomes for everyone, but particularly for the people that need second or third treatments. And that's a place where we still have a lot of room to improve on, though, again, there have been major improvements in the last decade. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Curavella. Um, continued success with all your work. It's been a really fascinating uh, podcast. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome, George. And uh, again, happy to you know continue to build knowledge for people out there as they may be having to deal with lymphoma in themselves, family, or friends. If listeners have any questions about this podcast or the subject discussed today, or need any support or resources to navigate your experience, I encourage you to connect with a community services lead in your region. For more information, visit bloodcancers.ca. If you liked our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can find us wherever you access your favorite podcasts. We also welcome any ideas for our program, so we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your suggestions or comments at info at bloodcancers.ca. This podcast was brought to you with the generous support of Roche and AstraZeneca. Thanks for your contribution to helping us understand the blood cancer experience. Thank you for listening to The Blood Cancer Experience, a series of podcasts presented by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. We are committed to supporting the blood cancer community through programs, services, and research. This podcast is presented by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada.